Well, can I admit a mistake before we begin today? I made a mistake in last week's sermon, and I need to clear it up before we move on. I said last week that the phrase in chapter 1, verse 6, in this you rejoice, I said that it could be translated as, in him we rejoice, meaning in Jesus we rejoice, which was my point. However, it cannot be translated that way. So I'm admitting my mistake this morning. I went home and I thought about it and I was like, why? If that's a third person personal pronoun in Greek, why is it translated as a relative pronoun? And I went and I discovered that I had typed it in wrong. I typed him, the word him, into my sermon manuscript and I should have typed the word whom. So it, it should be translated with a relative pronoun in Greek, in whom you rejoice, not in him you rejoice. The Greek word, which is just one letter, is a relative pronoun that could be translated whom or which or this. I think whom is the best translation, not him, which is a third person uh, personal pronoun. That's what pastors think about on Sunday afternoon, if you're wondering. What the grammar. Not really. It just popped into my head because God wanted to clear it up. So the point I was making remains the same. We rejoice not just in this salvation as the ESV translates it. We don't rejoice in some abstract theological concept of salvation, but we rejoice in a person. We rejoice in Jesus Christ. So I should have said in whom you rejoice, not in him you rejoice. The point is the same that I was trying to make, but I just need to let you know that I goofed up with that relative pronoun. So if you wrote in the margin of your Bible, in him you rejoice, then I apologize, especially if you wrote it in ink. But let me fix it if you wrote it in ink. If you wrote in the margin of your, your Bible, in him you rejoice, here's how you can fix it. You can just take that I in him and make it an O and then add a W to the front and then you'll have in whom you rejoice and then your Bible's not messed up. So in all seriousness, I apologize for, for making that mistake with the relative pronoun. So perhaps we should pray once again before we start and ask God to help us understand his word and that I not make any mistakes. And so, Father, we come to your word as fallen, broken, messy sinners struggling to understand that even as a preacher and a pastor, I make mistakes. Only your son is perfect. And by the power of the spirit, would you direct our hearts to see Jesus this morning? For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how's that for starting a sermon? Especially on a Sunday when we're celebrating our missions conference. How's that for starting? The pastor opens up the missions conference sermon by saying, I messed up last week. I think it's actually a great way to start a sermon, especially one that is focused on missions. And here's why. Because who better to take the gospel to the nations than messed up sinners? Forgiven sinners, bad sinners, bad people, not perfect people taking the gospel to the nations, but imperfect people taking the perfect gospel to other imperfect people. So I think it's a great way to start our sermon on a mission Sunday. In fact, that's the only kind of people who take the gospel to the nations, is imperfect, broken, messy sinners. So you, yes, your pastor is a sinner. I sin. 
I make mistakes. I even make mistakes in preaching. And I'll remind you once again, as I reminded those at our newcomers lunch last week, this church, Grace Baptist Church, is full of sinners. We are broken We are messed up. We make mistakes. And if you don't know that about us, you will be unnecessarily disappointed. We are a church made up of broken, messy sinners, and we all have issues. All of us. Don't think you don't. We know you do. Because the Bible says you do. But we keep pointing one another to the only perfect one. His name is Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what missions is all about. It's about broken, messy sinners telling other broken, messy sinners where they can find hope and where they can find redemption. And I hope that you have been a part of our missions conference this weekend. And I do hope that your passion for seeing the nations come to worship Jesus has been reignited. And if you weren't with us this weekend, then at least visit the tables that are in the hallways and learn about the missionaries that we support here at Grace. And I also hope that you'll join us tonight as Rob and Christine Wright share their passion to move to Japan to be missionaries. Rob is one of our elders, and instead of retiring from the police force, he's moving his family to Japan to spend the next 10 years or so learning Japanese so that they can reach the Japanese people with the gospel. So not only do I hope that you will come tonight to hear their passion to reach Japan with the gospel, I hope that each one of you will make a decision to support them financially Every month with your hard-earned money. Would you do this for me? Would you seriously pray and ask God if he would have you to support them financially every month? Maybe give up one Starbucks drink a week and give that money away. For the cost of one Frappuccino a week, you could help the rights go overseas to reach the Japanese. And they are raising support, and I think they're about 25%, and they want to be in Japan by uh, August 2015. And though we will be sad to see them go, we love that they are going. We love that they love Jesus. We love that they love Japan, and we want to support them and get them there as soon as we can. And that's what missions is all about. It's about being involved in some way. As John Piper has famously put it, when it comes to missions, we have three choices. Go, send, or disobey. So God may not call you to go to Japan like the rights, but he has called you to support and to send and to prayerfully back those who do go overseas. So there's an appetizer big sermon, a big idea for this sermon for you. We're not getting to our big idea yet, but here's an appetizer big idea for this sermon. Go, send, or disobey. And after this sermon, you will have three choices, three ways that you can respond to missions. Go, send, or disobey. And I hope you'll do one of the first two. 
As I mentioned, this is our missions conference weekend, and the global outreach team has been happy to stir your heart again for missions. But please understand this about grace. As you understand that we're a church made up of messy, broken sinners, you must understand this also about grace. Every Sunday is Missions Sunday here at Grace. As far as I'm concerned, every single Sunday at Grace is Missions Sunday. And the reason I say that is because I think that's what the Bible says, but also because of what our mission statement says. It's this, we exist to ignite a passion in every person. And I intentionally chose that word person to to reflect people groups. We exist as a church to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. The reason that we gather here each week at Grace is to get recalibrated, to ignite and then reignite a passion in every person, every person in this church, every person in this city, every person in every people group around the world. We want to ignite a passion in them to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. We want to see people from every nation Race, tribe, and tongue come to know and love Jesus. That's what we're about as a church. And the reason that I say that we gather each week to get recalibrated is because we need recalibrating every week, don't we? How easy is it for us to get sucked into the vortex of our own little kingdoms, our own little worlds that revolve around us where we're the king and we're the queen and life is all about us and our desires and our passions. How easy is it to get sucked into that? How easy is it to lose sight of the fact that we are here as Christians, as disciples, as a church, to tell others about Jesus? How easy is it to relegate missions to a missions conference? How easy is it to lose sight that the passion of the triune God's heart, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, 24-7, from all eternity past, God's passion has been to see people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue Come to know and love Jesus. How easy is it to lose sight of that? It's easy, isn't it? It's easy to get lost in our own world and forget why we are here. And when we do that, when we lose sight of God's passion to see his name exalted and cherished in the nations, When we do that, then we end up living in a place that I love to talk about. I love to talk about this fifth dimension that exists. It's a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. I love to talk about this fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. So please forgive me, because I have to. I know we just talked about the twilight zone last week. 
And I know I talk about it all the time, and it bothers some of you. Sorry. Get over it. But I have to open, I have to open this sermon with another episode of the greatest show on television ever. And when I get done with this sermon, you'll know why. But I'm going to tell you in advance why I must begin this sermon once again with a Twilight Zone illustration. Here's why. Because when you and I lose sight of God's passion to see the nations come and worship around his throne, then we end up living in our own personal episode of the Twilight Zone. When we forget that we are here to tell people about Jesus, to go to the nations with the gospel, to pray for those who go to the nations with the gospel, to support financially those who go to the nations with the gospel, when we forget that this is why we are on this planet, then the hard reality is this. We are living in the twilight zone. And for many of us, we are like Henry Bemis in that famous episode, Time Enough at Last. Burgess Meredith puts in a stellar performance as Henry Bemis in this episode. He's a a dorky man with dorky glasses who, who loved reading books. His passion was books, but Henry could never find time to read books. His wife was always nagging him about reading, taking all of his books, marking in them, throwing them away. She would even take away the ketchup bottle from the table because he loved to read the ingredients. He just loved reading. His boss at the the bank where he worked was always getting on to Henry because instead of working, he would be reading books. He was passionate about books, passionate about reading. So one day, Henry goes into one of the bank vaults where he works to read during his lunch break, and he has a book And he has the day's newspaper, and on the front page of the newspaper, the headline reads, H-bomb, hydrogen bomb capable of total destruction. And Henry settles in, and he's all alone, and he's as happy as he can be, and he begins to read. And then there's this massive explosion. And Henry emerges safely from the bank vault to find that the entire world was blown up. Henry is now alone. No human beings were left on the earth because a hydrogen bomb exploded and wiped out the entire human race except for Henry Bemis. And in time, though he has all the food he could ever need, the loneliness gets to Henry. And just as he is preparing to take his life, Henry notices the remains of a library. And he sees book after book after book, stacks of books. As far as the eye could see, it was just books And just Henry Bemis on the planet with all the time in the world to do the one thing that he was passionate about, read books. Henry's passion is seen in his discovery of this treasure trove as he exclaims, collected works of Dickens, collected works of George Bernard Shaw, poems by Browning, Shelley, Keats, greatest authors of the world, books, books, all the books I need, all the books. All the books I'll ever want. Shelley, Shakespeare, Shaw, all the books I want. And the very best thing, the very, very best thing of all is that there's time now. There's all the time I need, all the time I want. Time, time, time. There's time enough at last. And then shortly after this discovery, 
Henry drops his glasses on the ground and the lenses in his glasses shatter. His dream scenario is over. Henry is all alone in the world with all the time in the world, with all the books in the world, and he can't see. He's not able to read. A classic episode of The Twilight Zone and one that we need to talk about today as we talk about missions. Why do we need this episode? Because it's a picture of what happens to so many Christians. They hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit regenerates them. He makes them alive so that they can repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. And they are so happy and so full of joy and so overwhelmed at the grace and mercy of God. And in time, that passion slowly disappears. And it happens to all of us at some point on our journey. We start to lose focus. We can't see. We can't see. We lose sight of the gospel. We can't see. We lose sight of God's passion to see the nations come and worship him. We can't see anymore. We lose sight of the glory of God shining in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we have just found ourselves in a fifth dimension living in our very own episode of the twilight zone. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for this church. So let me ask you at the beginning of this sermon, and we're about 10 or 15 minutes in, but still the beginning. How do you feel about missions? How do you feel about the gospel going to the nations? Bleh. It's optional. Not that interested. It's for people who serve on the missions committee. It's not for me. How do you feel about missions? Understand this, Grace. We live in a very unique time. An unprecedented time in the history of salvation. An unprecedented time in redemptive history. It's not time to get trapped in our own episode of the Twilight Zone. I don't want that for you, and Peter didn't want that for his audience. And that's why Peter, in verses 10 through 12, will tell us how to be a missionary. And he'll highlight how the prophets of the Old Testament and how the angels in heaven, how they can actually help us become missionaries. In verses 10 through 12, Peter will tell us to take a good look at salvation and then take the good news to the nations. The prophets of the Old Testament and the angels of heaven teach us to take a good look at your Savior and then take the good news to your neighbor. Peter will explain how the Old Testament prophets were passionate about salvation. He will explain how the angels of heaven are passionately seeking to understand the gospel even now. He will tell us that we should take a good look at our Savior and then take the good news to our neighbors. He will tell us to take a good look at salvation and then take the good news, the gospel, to the nations. These verses are the perfect passage for a missions sermon at a missions conference, and God in his sovereignty worked it out that we would be here in 1 Peter today. 
So let's dig in. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The salvation that Peter is describing here to his readers is what he was talking about. The salvation that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to is that salvation that Peter has been talking about in verse 1 through verse 9. How God in his sovereignty elects and chooses certain people for salvation. That his foreknowledge in love he chooses them. How the Holy Spirit sets them apart so that they belong to God. How through Jesus' obedience and through the sprinkling of his blood through his active and passive obedience that we receive mercy and and peace and grace from God. That's that salvation that Peter's talking about, that the prophets look for. He's talking about that salvation that we saw in verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who now are being guarded by God's power through faith for a what? A salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, in this person, Jesus, in whom you rejoice this salvation. Though now you go through various trials. And then he would go on to talk about what we saw last week, how we can rejoice with this joy that is inexpressible and filled with the weightiness of the gospel. This is that salvation that Peter is saying the Old Testament prophets were looking for. These prophets prophesied in the Old Testament of a time when God's grace would invade this world in a way in which it never had before. There were just glimpses and shadows in the sacrifices and in the rituals and in the law. But now, since Jesus has come, the fullness has come. Of course, these prophets were prophesying and anticipating a time when the Messiah When Jesus Christ would come. They didn't know much about it. They didn't have all the details. They were looking through murky glasses. All that they knew was that at the very beginning. God promised to send a redeemer. To crush the devil. And to restore this broken fallen world. And in what theologians call the first gospel. God promised to send a redeemer. Who would crush Satan. Who would crush the head of that ancient serpent. That tempted Adam and Eve to sin in the Garden of Eden. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God appeared and made a promise to Adam and Eve. And in cursing the serpent, in the curse of the serpent, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, gave a promise to Adam and Eve, to humanity. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the snake. And between your offspring and her offspring, he, that's Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this moment, God promised to send one of Eve's seed, one of her offspring, one of her descendants who would crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan, the devil. All of this Jesus, of course, did through the cross. So the Old Testament prophets knew Genesis 3.15. They knew that one day a redeemer would come. One day the Messiah would come. They just didn't know when. 
So they are inspired by the Holy Spirit to prophesy of Jesus coming in passages like Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah 53 and Micah chapter 5 and, and many, many, many others. But they didn't understand it fully. But, Peter says, they searched and inquired carefully. Verse 10. They put on their reading glasses so they could see. They were passionately seeking to understand when the Redeemer would come and deliver Israel. They were passionately seeking to understand what they preached and prophesied even in their own sermons because the Spirit was inspiring them and they wanted to know. They spoke of the Messiah coming and suffering greatly like in Isaiah 55, 53. They spoke of the glory that would follow the Messiah's suffering in passages like Zechariah 14. They wanted to know all they could about the promised Redeemer. When's he coming? What does it mean that he will suffer? What does that mean? What would that look like? What about the glory that will follow his suffering? They wanted to know all they could about the Messiah. So they prophesied and preached of his coming. They preached to Israel. They prophesied to Israel. They preached to the nations. They prophesied to the nations. And they searched intently and inquired carefully, trying their best to figure it all out. They were passionate about trying to understand this salvation. And so they got the call from the Holy Spirit who told them that he had a job for them. He had a preaching gig for them. And the Holy Spirit, I imagine, told them, take a good look at salvation and take the good news to the nations. And what else did the Holy Spirit tell them? I imagine it was something like this. Old Testament prophets, this is not for you to see. This is not for you to fully grasp and comprehend. You cannot fully grasp even your own sermon manuscript. This is for the future. This is for others who will see and hear in a way that you cannot. This is not for you to fully understand. It's for others who will come after you. And that's exactly Peter's point in verse 12. And he says, it was revealed to them, that's the Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, Peter's readers, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Peter is telling his audience that these Old Testament prophets were actually serving them. They were serving the church. They were serving all those who would believe in Jesus between his first and final coming. The Old Testament prophets were not ultimately speaking to their own generation, but to believers in the future, people on this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, to people like us. So Peter is telling his readers that the Old Testament prophets were serving them. The elect exiles who were scattered all over Asia Minor in Peter's day were being served by Old Testament prophets hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. What an amazing thing that people in the Old Testament looked for and longed for what has come upon us this side of the cross. As Paul says, I'll read a few places, but it's all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 
and in Colossians 1.26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This means that we live in a unique time, Grace. The end of the ages has come upon us. We live in an unprecedented time in salvation history. We live in a unique time of blessing. We represent the fulfillment of biblical history. We live in a time of history that people long ago longed to see. We live in a time of history that has seen the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 3.15. And now the gospel is advancing to all nations Now, for Israel in the Old Testament, it was a come and see religion. Come and see what Yahweh is like. Come and see how we live. See how we live according to his laws. We will tell you, but you come and see. But now, in the New Testament, it's a go and tell religion. Go and tell people what God is like. Go and tell people of all nations. Go tell them about Jesus and what he has done. Go and tell them about salvation. So we live In a very unique time, Grace, it's a go and tell time. And that's why we love missions here at Grace. Because we know that right now we are called to be busy telling others about Jesus. But understand this too. Missions will not last forever. Missions is not the ultimate goal here. We love missions. We want to be busy with missions but it's not the ultimate goal. Sending missionaries and supporting missionaries is not our ultimate goal as a church. As John Piper says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad, Psalm 97.1. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, Psalm 67, 3 through 4. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. We do missions because the worship of the triune God doesn't exist in thousands of places around the world. That's why we do missions, because there are people out there that don't worship Jesus, that don't treasure him. Our big idea today is take a good look at salvation, then take the good news to the nations. But you cannot, you will not tell people about Jesus if you don't treasure him above all things. You'll never be able to cry out, let the nations be glad, 
If you can't say from your own heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I sing praise to thy name, O most high. You will never desire to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory unless you enjoy that glory. Do you enjoy that glory? If you don't enjoy God, you don't enjoy his glory. And I don't mean perfectly because none of us do it perfectly. But if you don't enjoy God's glory and you don't want to share that glory with others, then you are living in the twilight zone. If you don't have a desire to see the nations come and worship and enjoy Jesus, then you are living in your very own episode of the twilight zone. And the only way to get out of that funk, the only way to get out of that fifth dimension is to turn your eyes to Jesus. The only way to get out of the script of the twilight zone and get into the script of the Bible It's to put your glasses on and to see Jesus as glorious and magnificent and full of splendor and to see him as the only one who can satisfy your dry, weary, thirsty heart. Listen, if you're a Christian and you don't give a rip about missions, you're living in the twilight zone. This is why you were made Christian. And if you're not involved in any way, You desperately need to cry out to God and say, forgive me and open my eyes and let me see Jesus. Help me rehearse the gospel. Believe the salvation that Peter's talking about and let me go out there and open my mouth. If you're not hungry for that, if you're not zealous to see the world come to know Jesus, you're living in the twilight zone. And the only way to get out is to open your eyes and see Jesus. And that's what happened to the early church. And that's, what, that's how Peter's audience heard the good news. People were passionate about Jesus, started taking the gospel to the nations to, as 1 Peter 1, 1 says, to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And the gospel that Peter mentions here, it's the Greek word gospel, gets translated as good news in verse 12. This gospel was preached by Holy Spirit-inspired preachers in Peter's day, and they had a deeper fuller understanding of the gospel now that Jesus had come in a way that the Old Testament prophets didn't. And this gospel, Peter says, is so glorious, it's so magnificent, it's so full of splendor that even angels long to look into it, to understand it. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you, Scattered exiles in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This verse has always fascinated me. The angels in heaven are fascinated with what happens in the gospel. They're always looking at salvation, always looking at the gospel, always looking at Jesus, trying to understand how and why God saves messy, broken, rebellious sinners like you and me. And the verb that Peter uses here for look means to stoop or strain. It's as if the angels of heaven are stretching out their necks, stooping down and looking down upon and marveling that God saves sinners. 
what's going on here, Gabriel? I don't know, Michael. He keeps saving these people that are rebellious. They're dead in sins. Why does he keep saving? I'm trying to understand it too. You're Michael the archangel. You should know. You're Gabriel. You should know. I just want to know, why does God keep saving these people? Remember, angels do not experience salvation. They don't experience redemption. They don't experience grace. They don't experience mercy because they have never sinned. Of course, there were some angels who sinned and were deceived and led astray by the devil, but the angels in heaven have never sinned. And that's why angels don't make good missionaries. Angels don't make good missionaries because they've never sinned. They don't know grace. They've never experienced grace. They've never experienced mercy. They've never tasted that. So they don't make good missionaries. But angels can teach you how to be a good missionary. Angels can teach you a bad sinner, a bad person, how to be a good missionary. Angels can teach you how to get out of the twilight zone that you're living in. How can angels teach us to get passionate for missions? They do it by doing what they do all the time looking closely at God's wondrous work of salvation in saving sinners. Angels are fascinated with the gospel. They stare at Jesus and they marvel at his work. They remind us, like the Old Testament prophets, to take a good look at salvation and then take the good news to the nations. So we have the Old Testament prophets looking forward to the Redeemer that would come. We have the angels in heaven who look down to see God saving sinners. And here we are in the middle of this very unique time. A unique time that the Old Testament prophets wanted to see. They wanted to see it and understand it. A unique time that makes the angels in heaven stoop down and strain their necks to understand Angels don't make good missionaries because they have never sinned. But we have. We are the perfect candidates for missionary work. We are the perfect, imperfect candidates. We go and tell people they can be forgiven of their sins just like us. Perfect people aren't meant to be missionaries. I got my act together. I'm perfect. No, we're all broken and messed up, and therefore we are the perfect, imperfect candidates to be missionaries. Angels aren't, though, because they've never sinned. And yet they still stoop and strain to see Jesus, to look into salvation, to look into the gospel. And to think that we are sometimes passive about all of this salvation that Peter's talked about for nine verses. Sometimes we lack the passion that the prophets had. And we lack the passion that the angels have right now. And we are the blessed ones who live in this very unique, unprecedented time in the history of salvation. Sometimes we get stuck in the twilight zone. As the 80s Dutch rock band Golden Earring sang in their hit song, Twilight Zone. 
Help, I'm stepping into the twilight zone. This is a madhouse, feels like being home. My beacon's been moved under moon and star. Where am I to go now that I've gone too far? Help, I'm stepping into the twilight zone. You remember that song? Some of us have stepped into the twilight zone, and our life is a madhouse. Because we aren't living for our purpose to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. So our life is out of joint. We need to be recalibrated. Some of us, like the song says, we've lost sight of the gospel beacon. Praise the Lord, we haven't gone too far. We can get recalibrated. You can get recalibrated this morning or any time by simply doing one thing, looking at Jesus, by straining your neck to see him. Take a good look at your Savior and then take the good news to your neighbor. Take a good look at salvation, then take the good news to the nations. The prophets in the Old Testament longed to see Jesus. They were digging into the scriptures, trying to figure it all out. They just wanted to see Jesus. And the angels in heaven are doing the same thing even as I speak. As I'm speaking in this sermon right now, there are angels looking into gospel, looking into the gospel. There's a gospel class up in heaven. We're still trying to figure it out. The teacher doesn't even know. They keep looking at Jesus, they keep looking at him, they keep looking at him, they keep looking at him, and they're trying to figure out how and why he loves sinners so much. They can't seem to understand how he keeps on loving sinners and showing them mercy. And both angels and prophets teach us how to be missionaries, how to get recalibrated to do missions. It's this, keep looking at Jesus, keep looking at Jesus, keep looking at Jesus, keep looking at Jesus. And we are always encouraging you here at Grace to do just that. You have to know this about us as a church. We're always telling you to preach the gospel to yourself, to rehearse the gospel. We want you to focus on your Savior, not your behavior. We believe in preaching the gospel to ourselves Rehearsing the gospel. We don't want you to feel condemned. We don't want you to live under shame and guilt because you're free in the gospel. So we're all about the gospel here at Grace. But we don't want to be a church that is fluent in the gospel, but we only preach it to ourselves. We don't want to be a church that just preaches the gospel to the person in the mirror. We want to preach the gospel to ourselves and then go preach it to others, that's the kind of church I want us to be. And when you do that, when you start telling people about Jesus, when you start praying for missionaries, when you start supporting missionaries financially, then you will start doing the first two things of this statement. Go, send, or disobey. Now, I was going to give you some very easy and practical ways to get involved in missions, but Rob Wright emailed me this week and told me what he was sharing, going to share tonight, and I had many of those things in my sermon manuscript, so I deleted it, and so now you have to come back tonight at 6 o'clock to find out some practical ways that you can be involved in missions. I'm not going to give it to you, Rob, so you have to come back tonight at 6 o'clock. But let me just share two ways that you can be involved in missions now. 
Number one, the Joshua Project. Visit joshuaproject.net. Write it down, joshuaproject.net. Sign up for their daily email. You get tons of junk email that you hate and you still stay signed up, right? You never hit unsubscribe. Here's a good one. Sign up. They will send you info on an unreached people group every single day. Do they have the Bible in their own language? Do they have the Jesus film? Do they have any believers there? What's the main religion and the main God that they worship? You can read that. Take a minute to read that and pray for them. And then you will be very involved in missions just by opening your email and taking one minute of your 24 hours every day and praying for an unreached people group. It's a way to be very involved in missions. And the second way that you can be involved is to support Rob and Christine Wright financially. I really hope you'll do this. I hope you come back tonight and hear their passion to reach the people in Japan. In closing, look to Jesus to get recalibrated. Look to Jesus and go. Look to Jesus and send. Look to Jesus. Read about him in his word And it will ignite a passion in you to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. And if you don't have that and you're in the twilight zone, plead with the Lord. Lord, open my eyes. I'm Henry Bemis. I'm living in the twilight zone. I can't see. Open my eyes. Listen, Grace, we live in a very unique time in salvation history. Others long to see it. They wanted to see it. Angels are trying to understand it right now. And here we are in the middle of it. Don't waste your life by living in and starring in your very own episode of The Twilight Zone. This is why you were made to be involved in God's global plan of saving a people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. Don't miss out. Look to Jesus. Worship him. And then make it your aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. Take a good look at your Savior. Then take the good news to your neighbor. Take a good look at salvation, what Peter's talked about in verses one through nine, the life, death, resurrection, and as we'll see next week, the return of Jesus. Take a good look at salvation and then take the good news to the nations. Father, all of us at some point, and maybe many here right now, are living in the twilight zone, totally disconnected from the one passion of your heart to see your son glorified. Would you help us this morning? Would you open our eyes, give us glasses to see how glorious your son is? Would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, illumine our minds, arrest our attention, our hearts, awaken us, get us recalibrated to look to your son Take a good, long, hard look at him and be so overwhelmed to preach the gospel to ourselves that we then go and share it with others here in our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, this city, this country, all the way to places around the world that have never even heard of you. Would you help us to do that for your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name? 
Amen.